Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In this initial invitation to Peter and Andrew, we knew him as Simon at the time, Simon and Andrew and to James and John, Jesus is saying, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. The process of discipleship always starts with an invitation, but discipleship always includes a transformation. And if discipleship takes and that transformation holds, then there's always a reduplication. Jesus is saying, if you become my disciple, I will teach you how to make more people into my disciples. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Discipleship is an interesting thing because it's something that we never quite get perfect. We always, in our sanctification, seek to grow more and more like Jesus. But every single day, we must reaffirm our commitment to Christ. Every single day, we must reaffirm our commitment to die to self and to live for Him. Every single day, we must rely on what Christ has given to us. We must rely on the Holy Spirit who indwells us to lead us into the right actions, to lead us into the right proclamation of the Lord Jesus. Every single day we've got to do these things because our nature is so opposed to what God wants of us left to our own devices. But we are never left to our own devices and thank God for that. We serve a risen Christ We are led by an indwelling spirit, and together we can accomplish the will of the Father. As we wrap up our Easter Can You See series today, and don't forget, next week we'll have a nice Mother's Day series, our Mother's Day sermon, along with our child dedication, and then after that we'll start our friendship series, and we'll have five different examples, building blocks of friendship that we'll want you to focus in on. It'll be a lot of fun. But as we wrap up our Can You See Easter series, we find ourselves in the text of John chapter 21. If you have your Bibles before you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 21. I'll also have the text on the screens behind me so that we can see discipleship in play. Jesus is going to reaffirm his invitation for the fellas to follow him. And we're going to see through our text today and what is the result of this text, the transformation and proclamation of the men of God who are called to be disciples on behalf of God. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be looking at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of Scripture in awe of God's Word? John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they uh, were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so we have an invitation to follow him. Peter is invited to follow Jesus, and this is a very, very important invitation, for it's not just an invitation to discipleship. It's an invitation which is also a restoration. Peter needs it. Peter needs it. Jesus had told the fellas to meet him in Galilee. And so after he had appeared to a number of people in Jerusalem after the resurrection, he went to Galilee to meet his friends where he told them to meet him. And so Jesus is over at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, and he's waiting for them. He's already gotten his fish and bread breakfast and he's got it going. And he sees the disciples fishing and he calls out to them in a very familiar way, friends, haven't you any fish? For these guys who were professional fishermen who had left everything they'd known to follow Jesus went back to where it all started and they picked their nets up again. Waiting for Jesus, they thought, well, it's dark, it's late, we may as well go out fishing. Simon Peter said, I'm going. And six of his friends followed. And they went out fishing, but they were not successful. They didn't catch anything. And then Jesus gave that same familiar refrain, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? And they did. And they caught 153 large fish. 
Now, this was a big haul. And as soon as they started catching all of these fish, John recognizes. John's always the first to recognize. John's always the first to recognize. He recognizes Jesus has come back from the dead. He recognizes that this is the Lord. And he says it's the Lord. Soon as Peter hears this, he wraps his cloak around him and jumps in. Now, of course, he'd taken it off so that he could have more dexterity and get out there and be part of the active fishing crew, but he saw Jesus only 100 yards off, and he had to, according to first century tradition, wrap something around himself so he wasn't just in his, his, his undergarments and ran and jumped in the water. He swam ashore ahead of the boat. He had to get there to see Jesus. This isn't the first time Peter has hurriedly and excitedly gotten out of the boat to see Jesus. He gets to shore, and he sees Jesus there cooking breakfast. And once all the guys show up, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Peter goes and he hauls the net of fish. And John tells us there were a lot of fish, but still, it didn't tear the net. And they bring some more of the fish to Jesus but he's already got fish right there. He doesn't need their fish, and yet he still wants them to bring to him what they've caught. This is important. And Jesus asks them to have breakfast with him. And after he breaks the bread, and after he gives the fish and gives the bread to them, Nobody dared ask who it is. They knew exactly who it was. They'd seen him in his resurrection state before. In front of all of them, Jesus asks Simon Peter the question. Simon, not Peter, Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, you, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, then I need you to feed my lambs. Simon. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then I need you to tend my sheep. A third time. Simon, do you love me? Now, the text tells us that Simon was hurt. He was hurt that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter, Simon, responds, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, it may seem from Peter's perspective that this was a hurtful thing, and it may seem like an unkindness that Jesus asked three times, but this was not an unkindness at all. This was a remarkable kindness issued to Simon Peter in front of the disciples in order to restore him to service. You see, during this time, Peter was quaking, Peter was shaking, not because he was cold having jumped into the Sea of Galilee, no. He was quaking because of the fire. He saw the charcoal fire, and he was asked by the Lord, whom he had denied by a very similar charcoal fire earlier, do you love me? And it all started rushing back through Simon's head. He remembered what Jesus had said earlier just a few weeks earlier, in John chapter 13, verse 38, Jesus said to Peter, Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And of course, in John 18, we hear these words, 
A little girl asks him, aren't you one of these man's, aren't you one of this man's disciples too? Are you? You aren't one, are you? She asked Peter. Peter replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. It was a very particular kind of fire. It was a charcoal fire. The Greek word for this is anthrakia fire. The only other time that it's mentioned this way in the New Testament is John 21, the anthrakia coal charcoal fire. Jesus was recreating the scene in which Peter had denied him three times and he was restoring him three times. The sense of smell, our olfactory sense, is one of the great connectors to memory. And as soon as Peter sees and smells and hears the crackling fire, he remembers the words of the Lord Jesus and he remembers what he did. John 18 continues in verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself and so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Peter denied it, saying, I am not. Strike two. Peter has denied the Lord. Well, the next verses, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man who, whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Jesus knew what would happen. Jesus knows all things. He knows that Simon loves him, but he knows that Simon needs to be restored. And I suspect that each of you feel like you have, at one point in your life, needed to be restored. I'm a man who needed restoration. I'm a man who needed restoration. I didn't start off in church. I didn't grow up going to church. My parents took me occasionally, but I wasn't, I wasn't into it. I didn't like church. And I remember very clearly the day that I decided I was done with church. It was all about intellectual objections that I didn't think that the minister could answer a fourth grader asking him, and he wouldn't take the time to answer my questions. And so I thought, no, no, if I can't figure this out, and you can't figure it out enough to explain it to me, I'm not going to be a part of it. And so my life took a path that was decidedly unchurched. And I remember being in high school, being exposed and confronted with the problem of evil, and deciding that I didn't have a good enough answer to the problem of evil. And you know what this is. If God is so good, why doesn't he choose to stop all the bad things? And if God is so powerful, why doesn't he choose to stop all the bad things? There's a lot of bad things. So either he's not that good or he's not that powerful. And either way, you don't need to worship him. And I was convinced that this was a good argument. I didn't have all the intellectual resources. I didn't have the, the thought processes behind why this was not a good argument. To an ignorant 15-year-old, this sounded really, really good. And most of the Christians that I knew were pretty dumb. And so they didn't know how to answer this either. I never took the time to find a smart Christian. After all, all the Christians in power that I'd known wouldn't explain things to me couldn't explain things to me. And so then all the Christians that I knew, all my little high school Christian friends, they're stupid high school kids. They couldn't explain it. They didn't have a whiz-bang youth minister who knew how to teach them. And even if they did, it wasn't their job. They are still learning themselves. 
It's not our kids' job to change the world. It's our job to train our kids to grow so that they can. Now, they can get started early, and they can invite their friends, and they can explain the truth to their friends, but it's not their job. Their job is to grow and learn. They're still being transformed. They will reduplicate the process later, but nobody I knew could handle it. And so I was an atheist. I was an affirmed, avowed atheist. And I took the time to pluck certain kids from the youth group that was most prevalent in our high school. And it wasn't until I met the youth minister of those kids whom I'd convinced not to go to church. And he got a hold of me and he took the time to explain the truth of the resurrection, to explain and answer my questions about the incarnation, and to talk to me about the Bible, and to show me both an example of intellectual prowess, for he was far smarter than I am, and loving kindness, he took the time. And it took weeks to go through all of my questions and objections. It wasn't until that time that I became a Christian. You probably remember becoming a Christian. You probably remember the joy and the zeal that came over of you. And you started thinking, I have been invited. I am being transformed. I need to go out and win more people. And that's good. You should. But your training continues even as you invite. And I wonder if you remember that odd sensation of knowing that you've been redeemed by the Lord and yet still enthralled by your sin. Do you remember that? Do you remember knowing that Jesus has started the transformation within you and yet you still have this very tight hold upon the sin in your life? You probably remember that. I do. For it's a hold in my life that I didn't let go of for a really long time. The sin that I was clinging to was lust specifically in the form of pornography. And it's how I was brought up. I had access to all kinds of horrible things, and I indulged in all kinds of horrible things. And even after I became a Christian, I had newfound faith, but I also had newfound freedom. And I went to college, and that did not go well. I went to college, and freedom started overwhelming my faith. And I started looking into all these lustful things, and it was not good. Well, I dropped out of college, gave up my scholarship, went home and sold cars for a year, and asked the youth minister who'd baptized me, where did you learn all this good God stuff? And he said, well, from my dad and from Ozark Christian College. And I said, okay, I'm going to go there for a year. I got to learn some of this stuff. And so I decided to go to Ozark Christian College for a year. And it was great. I fell in love with the Word of God. It was fantastic. I decided I would stay and finish. And the next year, I fell in love with a girl named Kim. And I thought, okay, don't tell her anything. Just don't tell her anything. Just lie and obfuscate and just don't tell her anything. And well, I doubt what's, what's your kind of you know, sinful background? Oh, just be very general and don't get any, into any specifics. And just maybe you can get married and you can trick her into marriage. And then once you're married, then, then you have an avenue to pursue some of these things you're so interested in. Uh, that didn't work. That didn't work. Six, six months in, she caught me for the first time um, looking at the same stupid stuff, and she started praying, God, please break Andrew of this. And I was praying, God, please break me of this. Um, her prayers were much more powerful. 
She would pray things like, God, do whatever it takes to break Andrew of this. I would pray things like, God, help me just overcome this and make sure that nothing bad ever all happens in my life. Because I started learning more about the Word of God. I started being a preacher. I was a preacher at a little town in Missouri. I was preaching every Sunday morning good stuff from the Word of God because the Word of God is good. And yet I still had this, this sin in my life. And I was hiding it. And only my wife knew. And then, after more training and more learning and more knowledge and another you know, degree, now a master's degree, I started teaching at Ozark Christian College. And I was teaching some of the kids who were being transformed good stuff from the Word of God because the Word of God is good. But I still had this tight hold on sin in my life. Well, finally it all came out. Finally it all came out. The pornography addiction came out. I was fired from Ozark Christian College in the fall of 2010. It was the worst time of my life. I hated it. We had to sell our house. We had to get rid of all of our stuff. I had to downsize my Superman collection big time, selling most of it. Uh, it, was, it was really, really tough. It was horrible. It was difficult. I remember very specifically, I was going to give a communion meditation at church that Sunday, the church we were attending, now that I was a professor at Bible College who still had secrets in. And I was called and told, you can't give the communion meditation anymore. And I said, all right, I understand. And sort of jokingly, I said, well, can I still take communion? And the guy said, I'll check. I said, okay. Yeah. It was really bad. It was really bad. Kim, my wife, however, was praising God because he'd finally answered her prayer. God, do whatever it takes to break Andrew of his sin. And it took smashing me upon the rocks of public disgrace and failure and getting fired from the job I love and being humiliated and embarrassed and having to call my father-in-law and explain to him how rotten I truly am and asking him for forgiveness. And it, it, was, a, it was really tough. It was really tough. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. My chance for ministry is out. I really wasted all those years. Like, I should have just stayed at regular college and become a lawyer. Wasted all my time going to Bible college. You can't go to Bible. You can't do God stuff now. Like, I'm a pariah. I have to bury my head in sand. I have to move away. I have to go where nobody knows me. It's over. That's what I thought. God can't use me. He used me when I was an atheist and he got a hold of me. And he spurred me to become a guy who devotes his entire life to trying to help people with intellectual objections understand that God's stuff can be understood. Don't you think he could still use me even in the face of sin? I didn't think so at the time. And I bet neither did Peter. I bet neither did Peter. I bet he, I bet he was nervous. I bet he was worried. But God said... God in the flesh said, here's what I want you to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Can you do this for me? Do you love me? And three times he said yes. And do you know what God did for me? God asked me, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to dedicate yourself to this? Or do you just want to go back to law school? Do you just want to run away? Or do you want to do God stuff? And I said, God, you know all things. You know I want to do God stuff. He said, then do God stuff. 
And I said, but I can't. I got fired from the only job that ever gave me a chance really to do the God stuff I want. He said, then go back to school and get more. Unlock another door and kick your way into a different circle and do God stuff there. So I said, okay. And I went and I picked up a second master's degree and a PhD so that I could start talking to smarty pants guys about God stuff. And I was like, fine, I'll just do that. I'll do that. And I was committed that I would just be a PhD level professor doing God stuff. And he said, are you sure? You don't want to do more than that. And I said, I just want to do God stuff. He said, maybe you want to do God stuff in a church. I said, God, you know I can't do God stuff in a church. You know, I got fired from Bible college. No church is ever going to hire me again. And he said, I don't know. Why don't you just keep doing God stuff? And we'll see. And today, I've been the minister here at Glendale Christian Church for two and a half years. And I love it. And I want to be here for 28 more years. I want to be here, I want to be here when I'm 70 preaching. I want to have the same haircut, just white, <laughs> preaching here. It's already turning gray. I just want it to keep going. I just want to be here doing God stuff. My number one goal in life is when you hear the word God, that you would think the word Trinity. When you read the word God, you would think the word Trinity, unless context specifies one of the three persons. I want to talk about all the intellectual, deep, and good stuff. I want to share with you the word of God, because the word of God is good. And I know this. I've learned something, not just in my two and a half years here, but even before that, as I was going to school and training and working part-time at God Stuff, and my wife was a full-time God Stuff minister, I learned something. And here's what I learned. This is what I learned. Can you see that the risen Christ can restore even us to his service? I learned that it doesn't matter how far you fall, the risen Christ can still restore you to his service. You can say to people, I don't know him. You can say to a little girl who asks you, no, I don't know him, I'm not his follower. You can say to a relative of the guy whose ear you chopped off and Jesus miraculously plunked back on his head. No, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know him. You can say before all the rulers and leaders, I'm not his guy, and he can still use you. You can become the chief of all sinners blaspheming, denying, murdering the very first Christian martyr. And he can still use you. You can be a guy who was an atheist, who hated him, who plucked kids out of youth group, taking advantage of their undeveloped intellect, crushing their faith, then conning people into believing him only to be shattered upon the rocks of public scorn and disgrace. And he can still use you. Look at yourself and think, what have I done that prevents God from using me? Nothing is the right answer. There is no thing that you have done or could do that prevents you from being restored by the risen Christ. Even if he has to restore you in front of the same context in which you denied him, he'll do it. He'll pull you up in front of the anthracia, in front of the charcoal fire, and ask you thrice, do you love me? Yes. You know I love you. Then do the God stuff I've called you to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Do it. And he did. He had to have a public restoration because he had such a public 
denial. He had to have a public restoration in triplicate because he had a public denial in triplicate. He had to demonstrate his repentance, not in word, not merely in deed, but in heart to the master in triplicate in front of the guys that he would soon lead. It was a needed thing. And lead he did. For the best leaders are the very best followers. And after his restoration, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Peter, that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Follow me if you want to be my disciple. Take up your cross. Follow me in the black parade to your own death. Follow me, declares the risen Lord. Do you know what it is to follow him? It's not just to be his disciple and to be transformed. It's to die. He beckons you to die. Come follow me is an invitation to your death. Now, not always to your physical death, but sometimes. Are you, are you willing to follow the invitation even unto your physical death? That's what Peter had to do. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't very much longer. It was less than uh, 20 years from now um, where Peter would die. He would be executed, crucified, in the same fashion that Jesus was crucified, nailed to a cross, and left to die. But Peter did not want to die the exact same way that Jesus died, and so he asked, no, no, please hang me upside down. And so, rather than hanging like Jesus, they turned the cross upside down, and he died even quicker. Jesus was crucified, and Peter followed him unto his physical death, but begged to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being executed in the same manner as his Lord. Follow me? He did. Before he died? Follow me? He did. Think about your death. I'm not trying to be morbid here. I'm not trying to be macabre, and I'm not trying to forecast your physical death. That's not what I'm interested in, though some of you understand that physical death is a reality that will crash down upon all of us. I want you to think of your spiritual death. I want you to think of the death you died this morning and the death you'll die tomorrow morning. I want you to think of the death you have to die every single day when you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow Jesus. I want you to think about that. And now I want you to ask yourself this question. Can you see that the risen Christ compels our lives and our deaths? Can you see that? Can you see that the risen Christ compels our lives? If he wants me to preach, I'll preach. If he wants me to learn, I'll learn. If he wants me to go, I'll go. If he wants me to die, I'll die. But until the day I die physically and I'm freed from this fallen, fleshly, sinful body of mine, I will die every single day to self. Follow me is an invitation to take up your cross and die every single day. 
I know that there are sins that you want to hold on to, like lust or pornography or greed or anger or lying or avarice or whatever it may be. I don't care. But I know that there are sins that we really like, that we cling to. I'm telling you, just die already. You can't hold on to your sin when your hands are nailed to the cross. So take up your cross and let go of your sin that so easily entangles and follow him. Oh, Peter did. Peter did. He followed him hard. And when the Holy Spirit came, this is what happened. Acts chapter 2 demonstrates these words. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Peter and all the guys. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like tongues that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Fellow Israelites, listen to this, said Peter, the restored, now Holy Spirit-filled Peter. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God promised on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has now poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all of Israel... Be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were cut to the hearts. And Peter said to them, and they said to Peter rather, and the other apostles, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Having heard, having believed, now they ask, what must we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to that number their number that day. Follow me. Oh, he did. He followed him all the way back to the upper room. He followed him now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He followed him right back to the footsteps of the temple, the same temple where Jesus was condemned earlier, and he now preached about the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord Jesus 
And people were cut to the heart. They heard the message. They believed the message. And now they needed to know what to do because of the message. And having had heard and having believed, they now were told to repent, to confess, to baptize, be baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Oh, yes. He had an invitation. And Peter experienced a transformation. And because of that, he was able to make fishers, become a fisher of men, and make more into disciples. Can you see that the Spirit leads us to transformation and to proclamation? If you have the Spirit of God within you, can you see that the Spirit leads us to transformation? He transforms us. The Holy Spirit transforms us. Now, if you're willing to take up your cross daily, He can transform you real quick, fast, and in a hurry. If you're still the kind who clings to your hidden sin and doesn't want to let go of that long enough to be nailed to a cross, the transformation takes longer. But He can transform you. And the Spirit can also lead you to proclamation. Discipleship always involves an invitation. Come follow me, said Jesus. Discipleship always involves transformation. And I will make you. Discipleship always involves reduplication. Fishers of men. Peter became a fisher of men. And it's good Because the last night of his professional fishing career, he couldn't catch anything on his own. But the very first day of his fisher of men career, he snagged 3,000 for the kingdom. Pretty good start. Pretty good start indeed. And you know what? We can do the same. We can do the same. Can you see that the risen Christ can restore even us to his service? Can you see that the risen Christ compels our lives and our deaths? Can you see that the Spirit leads us to transformation and to proclamation? And it's this very same Spirit that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 1. The Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This same verse that has been coursing through and weaving through all of our lives this year, this calendar year, 2 Timothy 1.7, talks about the same spirit that Peter had that transformed him, that turned him from a scaredy cat who couldn't catch any fish without Jesus telling him where to toss the net into a man who was ready to catch 3,000 souls for the kingdom of God. This same spirit indwells you and me if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead in our hearts then we're justified. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's this spirit that doesn't make us timid. Stop shrinking back in timidity. Stand boldly in power, love, and self-discipline. I wonder how your power, love, and self-discipline have been going. We haven't talked a whole lot about spiritual training plans for a while. I wonder, do you need to come up with new goals and new objectives so that you can continue to grow in your spiritual training and development? I think it's appropriate for us to do so. Here we are, going, heading heading into, now into May. Maybe we should rethink our spiritual training plans and kick them up a notch and work with our brothers and sisters and be held accountable. Because after all, 
There are a couple of things that we must do as a result of the truth of the risen Christ restoring Peter, calling him to life and death, and the Spirit enabling him to transformation and proclamation. And here, I think, are the three things that we need to do. We need to embrace the restoration Christ offers. Embrace it. No more sad sack sitting around saying, that's it, I'm so bad, I can't ever be used by God, I'm so horrible. Enough of that. He used Paul, he used Peter, he uses me, he can use you. Don't be so prideful as to think that your sin transcends and trumps mine or Paul's or Peter's. Oh, I'm actually the worst of all sinners. And even though the worst of all sinners, the chief of all sinners, Paul was restored and used by God, yeah, he surely can't use me. Stop! Instead, embrace the restoration Christ offers. Next, live for Christ and die to self. Just kill yourself already every single day. Wake up and take up that cross. Just do it. Take up that cross every single day. He says, follow me. That doesn't mean follow me to the Sea of Galilee where we'll have a really fun time. It means follow me to Golgotha, to your death. Take your cross and follow me to your death. So die every single day. Not physically, obviously, spiritually. You die to self and you live for Christ. Dying for self and living for Christ should be easy when we think of the fact that he died for us. So maybe we could at least live for him. And last, be transformed by the Spirit and proclaim the truth. Be transformed by the Spirit. And don't let that transformation result in, well, now I'm just a little bit better. I give a little bit more money to the church. Or now I'm just a little bit better. I go to a few more Bible studies. Or now I'm just a little bit better. I read my Bible on the occasional rather than the never. And no, don't let that happen. Be transformed and proclaim the truth. That's what I need you to do. That's what a disciple does. Proclaim the truth. Transformation doesn't mean you just know how to make your flies. It means you go out there and you fly fish. Transformation doesn't mean you just know how to create a really good lure. It means you put it in the water and you go fishing. Transformation doesn't mean you just know how to bait a hook. It means actually throwing that hook and line into the water. Transformation never means sitting there in silence. It always means proclaiming the truth. So get out there and proclaim the truth. Now what we're going to do is sing a song here in just a minute. And during this song, I want you to think, do I need to repent of sin? Do I need to repent of sin? And if so, pray to God and repent right there. Ask yourself, do I need to come to the Lord Jesus and proclaim his lordship over my life for the very first time? If so, come down, talk to me. We'll proclaim it in front of everybody. If you need special prayer, come down and talk to me. And if you want to join this fellowship of believers, just come down and talk to me. Right now, though, would you stand with me as we pray?